my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The best thing that ever happened to me was I did not have any radio skills like nobody taught me the traditional way to do radio so I would just be talking I go back and listen now it's not the terrible I was yelling and I was screaming and I'm answering the phones and we just was kicking it like how we would kick it you know in the hood and it became very popular in a very short amount of time one day in there doing overnights I said to myself I love this I've never felt passionate about anything before that I just knew this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. 
where we explore about the analytics of marketing and business and the magic, the creative, the stuff that gets consumers excited and builds the bonds with brands, businesses, in our case today, personalities. On this episode, we're going to explore how one person can have an impact on culture and society. Welcome, Charlemagne the God. Best known as the co-host of the syndicated radio morning show, The Breakfast Club, he's also on TV. He's in podcasting, he's on social, and he's a best-selling author. Charlemagne was born Leonard Larry McKelvey in Charleston, South Carolina. His mom was an English teacher, and his dad was a businessman with a wide range of businesses. Charlemagne appears to have picked up much from both. He got into a reasonable amount of trouble as a young man and then decided he was going to get it together. That led him through a number of jobs before he discovered his true calling, radio. And it's been an amazing ride since then. Charlemagne, welcome. How are you, BP? I'm doing well. Okay, so before we jump into your life, your ideas, and your lessons, let's do you in 60 seconds. Here you go. Do you prefer New York or L.A.? New York. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Beach or mountains? Beach. Cowboys or Panthers? Cowboys all day. Magic Johnson or Michael Jordan? Ooh, I'm going to say Magic Johnson. Cats or dogs? Cats. Prince or Michael Jackson? Michael Jackson. Drake or Kanye? Ooh. Old Kanye or new Kanye? Uh, <laughs> I, you know what? I'm going to say Kanye. Okay, it's about to get harder. Smartest person you know? I know a lot of smart people. I'm smart enough to know that I'm not the smartest person I know. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at that. Childhood hero? Malcolm X. First job? I worked at a factory called Industrial Acoustics company favorite city charleston south carolina secret talent i don't even think i have any talents i don't know what my secret <laughs> one would be. favorite tv show probably martin favorite comic book character wolverine favorite book the four agreements by don miguel ruiz favorite food eh, jamaican food like oxtails stuff like that hockey saltfish hockey saltfish for breakfast yes there you go what did you want to be when you were growing up alive okay here we go let's start with the obvious how did you get the name Charlemagne the God? Growing up in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, I was doing a lot of things I had no business doing. One of them was selling drugs. When I used to be on the block hustling, I would always say my name was Charles or Charlie. I was reading in a history book one day in night school, and I saw that Charlemagne was French for Charles the Great. And I literally just thought it sounded cool. I'm like, oh, I'm going to start calling myself Charlemagne. And so that's what I did. I just started calling myself Charlemagne. So it went Before from the radio? Oh, way before radio. This is like 96, 97. Where did the God come in? It's an offshoot of Islam called the 5% teachings of Islam. And they teach that the black man is God, and God is a Greek word derived from the Aramic words, Guma Az Dabar, which means wisdom, strength, and beauty. And so I was just like, oh, that's dope. You know, and plus, every rapper back then was calling himself the God, whether it was Jay-Z calling himself Jehovah the God, uh, everybody in Wu-Tang was a God, Rakim Allah was the God, like all of them used to call themselves God. So I was just started calling myself Charlemagne the God, which technically makes no sense because Charlemagne is Charles the Great, so it'd be like Charles the Great the God. Well, it's worked really well for you. It definitely looks good on a marquee, right? You're wildly successful on the radio as the co-host of The Breakfast Club with DJ MV and Angela Yee. It's heard on stations all over the country. It's heard on the iHeartRadio app nationally. It's seen on Revolt TV. You do other podcasts. You're on TV. You have millions of Instagram followers, Twitter followers, and, of course, you have the Donkey of the Day feature that everyone looks forward to. You've written books, all bestsellers, and you even wrote a special Marvel comic book. You've been called the Howard Stern of hip-hop or today's Johnny Carson or Jay Leno. Hard to imagine much more influence. 
Let's dig into how you got here from Monk's Corner, South Carolina. Can you paint the picture of where you grew up in those times? I grew up in a small country town. When I was growing up, it was a dirt road, cornfield surrounding everybody's house on that dirt road. My father used to always say, if you're driving down the highway and you see something dead on the side of the road, you get out and put your hand on it. If it's cold, you leave it there. If it's warm, you bring it home for dinner. That's literally what kind of town it was. There was nothing there growing up. You know, I remember when Sonic first came to our town, like, oh, Moscone got a Sonic now. Like, so we felt like a big city. Then when we got a super Walmart that was open 24 hours, we felt like we was in a big city. That's actually what we used to do for fun. There's nothing to do on a weekend. And it's after midnight and you're just tired of sitting around the house. You literally just go walk around Walmart. So from what I've read, your mom was a teacher. Your dad was a bigger than life personality with a huge presence in your town. What did you get from each of those? I learned a lot of what to do in my life from my mom. I learned a lot of what not to do in my life from my dad. You know, my dad was a good father. I realized he was just doing the best he could because he was dealing with his own issues with mental health and, you know, substance abuse. I remember going to visit my father in rehab. So I just know that he was doing the best that he could. So I really don't hold a lot of things against him because I do think he's a great man. You know, I just think that it's a lot of things he didn't teach me and he would discipline me for not knowing things that he should have taught me to begin with. I remember one time following him as he was driving and he ran the stop sign, so I ran the stop sign. He pulled over, so I pulled over. He got out the car, told me to roll the window down. He slapped me in the face, told me to wake up. You didn't see yourself run that stop sign? I'm like, I'm following you. You ran, you ran the stop sign. So it was that, that kind of relationship. But, you know, my mother, being an English teacher, she kept the book in my face. She always encouraged me to read, and she would always tell me to read things that don't pertain to me. So I would be the guy that would be reading, like, Judy Bloom and Beverly Clearly, and, you know, I'd be reading about Bigfoot and UFOs. And it was just that one little piece of advice, read things that don't pertain to you. That helped me transcend a lot of my circumstances and made me realize that the dirt road I lived on, I was much bigger than that. You had a lot of problems in school. You graduated from night school. You had some run-ins with the law. You tried a number of jobs first, working at a clothing store, telemarketing agency, flower garden. Your sister hired you and I guess fired you at Taco Bell for in two weeks for, for not taking it seriously. Yeah. Then you discovered radio. Before we get to that, though, why the bad times? I'm sure you had some explanations then, but looking back now, what do you think it was about? What lessons did you take from that? It was really just about wanting to fit in. When you're not getting what you need at home, you will get it from the street. And it's not like the love was real in the street. You know, it just made me feel good to be accepted. If my father wasn't dealing with the things he was dealing with, and he probably would have embraced me a little bit more and gave me that confidence I needed and, you know, that courage I needed and just empowered me, I probably would have not have gone to the streets the way that I did. What did you take away in terms of your life now from that experience? Nothing. It was nothing beneficial about being in that situation. You have a bunch of skills that you really don't need. I don't need to know how to sell drugs. Like, I, don't, I don't need to know how to carry a firearm because I was carrying it illegally back then anyway. Like None of what I went through then serves me in my adult life other than to have those experiences. So when I'm talking to young men that grew up in these areas, I can relate to them in a different way. And they can look at me and they can say, oh, well, you know, he went through a lot of the same things that I went through. When I started to see a lot of my friends going to jail and like guys around me actually getting prison sentences and people around me actually getting killed and cousins that I used to look up to, they really were the cousins that were doing everything that I was doing previously and they ended up broke 
under the tree, strung out on drugs or alcohol or whatever it was. That was a wake up call for me at a very young age to say, I don't want to end up like that. So more important than why did radio click with you? I was really just looking for something positive to do. I started working a lot of odd jobs. I worked at the clothing store called Demo in the Mall. I worked at Taco Bell. I worked at this factory called Industrial Acoustics. I worked at a telemarketing place where I used to be the guy that would call your house and try to sell you 12 CDs for a penny. Did you ever do that? Oh, Did yeah. That successfully? Oh, I was one of the best because I knew music. So that was a gift that I had. I knew music, so I knew what was good. My mother would tell me, read things that don't pertain to me. I would always listen to things that don't pertain to me. So... I knew everything from Johnny Cash to Fleetwood Mac to the new Jay-Z. Like, I knew all of it. And so I would just know how to sell these things to these people. And um, I used to want to rap, and I was in this recording studio, and I met a guy. His name was Willie Will. He was a radio personality at a, a local station in Charleston called Z93 Jams. And I just asked him, I said, how'd you get in the radio? And he was like, I went down there and I got an internship. And I'm like, it's that easy? Like, I don't have to be in school or anything? And he was like, nah. And mind you, this is 1998 in Charleston, South Carolina, so things are a lot different now. So that's what I did. I went down there the next day and I filled out the internship application and they hired me as an intern in the promotions department. And that's how I got my foot in the door. But I guess this is one of the ways that you could say the streets helped me because being at the radio station at the time, oh, some of these guys wanted weed. I knew where to get weed. <laughs> you know? So I would have the weed for them and they would always want me around. Like they would always request me, yo, I want Charlemagne to drive me to this remote or Yo, Charlamagne, where you at? Come to the studio. So I would just be in the studio, being the fly on the wall, just sitting there watching everybody do their job. And then sometimes they would call me in and ask me my opinion on things. And I would just talk. And the music director one day, his name was Ron White. Ron White was like, yo, you ever thought about being on the radio? And I was like, no, but I am now. Like, yeah, I'll show. I'll try it. And so they made me voice track one Sunday morning from 11 a.m., to 2 p.m. And I did that for a few weeks and then they immediately cut that out because it was Sunday morning in Charleston, South Carolina and I was a bit too much for that Bible Belt. So they started putting me on Saturdays 7 p.m. to midnight and I voice tracked from 7 to 10 and then from 10 to 12 I would go live. And I think the best thing that ever happened to me was I did not have any radio skills. Nobody taught me the traditional way to do radio. So I would just be talking. I go back and listen now, it sounded terrible. I was yelling and I was screaming and I'm answering the phones and we just was kicking it like how we would kick it, you know, in the hood. And it became very popular in a very short amount of time. One day in there doing overnights, I said to myself, I love this. I've never felt passionate about anything before that. I just knew this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And then, you know, just like anything else in my life, once I fell in love with it, I just started studying it, the Howard Stearns and the Frankie Crockers and the Petey Greens. And then, you know, you started getting into the new guys like the Tom Joyners and the Doug Banks. They were syndicated in our market. So I was already listening to them. But then you start learning about the Wendy Williamses and the Angie Martinez and all of these different people. And I remember saying to myself, if I really commit myself to this, I want to be like them. I don't want to just be in a local market saying time and temperature and introducing the next song. Like I want to be one of those people. What did you take away from them? You were listening to them. Mm -hmm. What did they sound like to you? Everybody I just named was authentic. They were really on the radio being themselves. They sounded like regular people 
having a conversation with you on the radio, talking about regular everyday topics that everybody was talking about. Like when my mom would ride to work in the morning and she had Z93 jams on and it was, oh, 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 it's the time, join the morning show. Like they was in there just talking about regular things that were going on in the world. And I just thought that was the coolest thing to have that kind of voice. When my mom woke up in the morning before there was iPods and satellite radio and podcast and everything else. There was Tom Joyner in the morning, and that's what she was listening to. And I always wanted to have that impact on people. I wanted to be that companion to people. So when you envisioned yourself being one of those people, have you turned into that or turned into something else? I've had identity crises, right? Because like I said, I didn't know how to do radio. So I was literally just in there being who I thought was myself. But at the time, you got to think it's 1998. I'm like 20 years old. You know, I didn't know myself at 20. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you grow. And then at a certain point, when you are having some success, you think I got to give people more of this. So then you become a caricature of yourself. I think at this point in my life right now, I am 100% comfortable with just being me. And I think I've been giving people just me for the past three years. I'm not giving people what I think they want to hear, not giving people what I think they like about me, just genuinely being me. My name is Leonard McKelvey. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I started going to therapy a few years ago. I took listeners on that journey with me. I've talked about every portion of my life along the way, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, some of it comes back to bite you, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because I think they really know me. So let's go to that journey. You go to Charleston, South Carolina, to Columbia, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Then you made this big jump to work with Wendy Williams in New yeah. York. How'd you make that big jump? People don't go from that size market to New York City. The company I worked for in Columbia, South Carolina was called Inner City Broadcasting. Inner City owned WBLS here in New York. So they started syndicating Wendy Williams on Hot 103.9 in Columbia, South Carolina. And I used to do nights with a guy named Big Sexy. His name's Bill Black. He works for iHeart now. Then I did nights with a young lady named Venom. Wendy and them used to come into the market, Wendy and her husband, Kevin. And I remember the first time Wendy was broadcasting from the studio, I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is my opportunity. I'm going to introduce myself to her because this is somebody I've been studying for years. And I used to do mixtapes at the time, and I used to do parody songs. And I wanted her to hear this one parody song because I thought she would really enjoy it. So I go in there, and Wendy said to me verbatim, yo, I'm trying to do my effing show. Get the F out of here. Take that mixtape to my husband. I didn't get discouraged. I said, well, where's your husband? She said, he's right over there across the hall. So I went across the hall, struck up a conversation with him, gave him the mixtapes. He enjoyed them. So from that point on, we had a relationship. That's when the internet started happening. So I started having viral moments. And so when these things would make its way up to New York, she knew me. She started shouting out some of the things I was doing. I did this interview with a young video vixen at the time. Her name was Buffy the Body. And I just remember asking her, like, yo, you don't want to be Buffy the Brain? What happens when you get older and, you know... Everything starts to sag. Like, you know, you don't want to be able to rely on your intellect. And she got really upset about that. But Wendy loved it. And Wendy was talking about it on the air. They invited me to come to a party in New York. And when I went to the party, Wendy asked me to come on her show. She literally was like, yo, come on my show tomorrow. And I was like, word? So the next day I was calling her husband all day. And her husband was like, yes, go up there now. I went up there for like 25 minutes. And that night at dinner, he was telling me, like, yo, you know she's looking for a co-host. She's tried out a bunch of comedians. She don't want a comedian. She really wants somebody from radio. She really just likes what you do. And he was like, look, we can't pay you, but we can give you a place to stay. I'm only making $6 an hour in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm like, cool. Why not? I was out, and I moved to New York. 
actually New Jersey, but I used to commute to New York every day just to do Wendy's show from 2 to 6 and would fly back to South Carolina to do my show on Saturdays. Oh, you kept your Saturday show. I kept my Saturday show for about six, seven months, and then my operations manager at the time said I couldn't have my cake and eat it too. (laughs) So I used to do it also just to make some money because I didn't have any money. I had like $300, if that. So I'd pack my little cotton suitcase. The way I would make money is by flying back to South Carolina and hosting parties on Saturday night. Do my radio show, go host a party, and fly back Sunday afternoon. So you left Wendy, you went to Philly, then you went back to Monk's Corner, and then in 2010, it really came together for you because with Wendy, as you say, you weren't making the money. You joined DJ Envy and Angela Yee, and you created the now legendary Breakfast Club on Power 105.1 in New York and on... I think 100 radio stations around the country, as well as nationally on the iHeartRadio app. This is a story about perseverance, and you took a hell of a lot of chances. What lesson do you take from that journey? When I got hired at the Breakfast Club, I had just got fired for the fourth time from 100.3 to beat in Philadelphia. The last interview I did was with a rapper named Beanie Siegel. He used to be signed to Jay-Z. He called into the show because he was from Philly, and he had a lot of not-so-nice things to say about Jay-Z. That was on a Friday That went super viral that weekend, so much so that Jay-Z even had to comment on it. And then that Monday, I got fired. So the blog said Jay-Z got Charlemagne fired. No publicity and bad publicity. Like, that made everything even bigger. Yeah, it looked good online, but in real life, I'm back home living with my mom at 31 years old and my one-year-old daughter. And I honestly thought in my mind that South Carolina was it for me. Like, I was like, you know what? I'm back living at home. There was a new station opening up in the market called 92.5 The Box. And I remember being on air with my man D-Nice, and it just felt so small. Like, it just did not feel right. It wasn't an ego thing. It wasn't a pride thing. In my mind, I already accepted. I'm going to be living back in Charleston. We're going to raise our family here. But it just did not feel right. Like, God, the universe just kept telling me, no. One day, the summer of 2010, I drove up to New York. I happened to just randomly text G-Spin. G-Spin used to work for iHeart. And I said, yo, I'm in the city. And he was like, yo, come to the station right now. Can you make it in? I said, yes. And when I get there, he goes, yo, my program director at Cadillac Jack at the time, he's like, he's been watching your online videos all day. Because I used to do these web videos with my man Lil Duval. And so we just sat down and we had a conversation. And Cadillac Jack said to me, he was like, yo, how long could you wait for a job like this? I said, what do you mean, a job like this? He said, just suppose I wanted to hire you at Power how long could you wait for a job like this? I said, for this job, I'll wait until it's time to go. Like, when you tell me to be here, I'll be here. A few months later, he was offering me a position on the morning show. Pretty amazing. It is pretty Did amazing. Did you have any idea the ride that was ahead of you? When I used to work for Wendy, I remember saying to myself, if I do what I'm supposed to do here on Wendy's show, one day I can host that morning show. When we first started doing The Breakfast Club, one thing you realize about iHeart, iHeart has some really good people, you know, like Dennis Clark. After two days, we did two shows, like literally two demo shows on like a Saturday and Sunday. Dennis Clark goes, this could be really something special. Like this could be something that could rival Elvis Duran. It could be Elvis Duran morning show level. He said that after two days. And for people who don't know Dennis Clark, he is the extraordinary talent coach we have here at iHeart. Unbelievable. Who works with our talent. He's got a gift. Guys like Dennis have a gift. And the reason I say that is because we live in this world where people think, If you're not part of a certain culture, you can't speak to that culture. Dennis Clark is a white man from I don't know where. He don't look like he's into hip-hop, but he just gets how to do good radio, and he understands people. 
he was like, okay, Envy, you're this. Angela, you're this. Charlemagne, you're this. After two days, and he has not been wrong since. I will listen to that man for the rest of my life. Let's give some advice here. What advice would you give to people who find themselves stuck in that struggle to the top? When you feel stuck, make sure that you're doing everything in your power to not be stuck. A lot of times we like to blame everything that's around us. You know, we like to blame other people. We like to blame certain circumstances. But are you truly doing everything that you need to be doing to not be in that position? Because God will not bless mediocrity. God will bless excellence. Excellence can be, you know, if I clean these windows, I'm going to make sure these are the best looking windows in the whole building. You know, if if I'm washing a car, I'm going to make sure that car is spotless. Like, are you always doing your best, putting your best foot forward. And if you can honestly say yeah, then truthfully, it's just a matter of time. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2 of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my this idea of, what do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math and Magic. We're here with Charlemagne the God. Let's jump to you today. I want to get your views on some things. Hip-hop culture. When did you know it had taken over the mainstream? Actually, a long time ago. I'm talking about in like the late 90s when you saw all of these white kids at Wu-Tang concerts. And you saw all these white kids loving Death Row Records, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. When you started seeing hip-hop all over MTV and you started to see other artists from other genres of music start to want to do hip-hop. It's like rap became the language. And so that's when I knew that it had taken over. I think it took a while for mainstream America to accept that, you know what, hip-hop is pop culture. This is a podcast for marketers and entrepreneurs. What do they get wrong about hip-hop? What is it and what is it not? I think they get it wrong that they think hip-hop is just still some novelty. They think it's niche. They think it's just a black thing. It's clearly embraced globally. But I think a lot of times people look at hip-hop and they still think it's dangerous. They still think it's violent. They have rightful reasons to think that in some cases. But, I mean, the hip-hop that's been out for the past 15 years does not reflect what was going on in the 90s. does not reflect what was going on in the early 2000s. Like, now you got Kendrick Lamar, Drake, J. Cole, Wale, Big Sean, Rhapsody, Chance the Rapper. These are some of the nicest people you're going to ever meet in your life. <laughs> like, And they're teaching a whole new generation of men that it's okay to be vulnerable. You know, It's okay to not be from the street. It's okay to not glorify the drug culture, to not celebrate the gang culture. You've reached the point, talking about your journey, that people now want to know what you think, not necessarily interviewing other people. And many would say you're a pundit or a philosopher. Are you reflecting the hip-hop culture, or is this just you? Is this your life, your thoughts? Well, that's the other misconception about hip-hop. The other misconception about hip-hop is that hip-hop is not all those things. I grew up listening to Chuck D from Public Enemy, and I grew up listening to Wu-Tang Clan and, you know, Goody Mob and Outkast. All of those people were philosophers. They were encouraging me to read certain books because they would rap about these books in their music. You know, they did have high levels of spirituality because they did believe in a higher power. I started studying a lot of different things because these rappers would mention these things in the music. Like, they would always be talking about politics. They would always be talking about religion. They were the pundits that had microphones and they were talking about things that were going on in society. So, like, that's always been a hip-hop thing. Hip-hop has always been broad and always been able to talk about all of those different things. Like I said, my mother would always tell me to read things that didn't pertain to you. So I literally was just a sponge. I would be into everything. After all the dues you paid and the struggles you endured to get here, how do you deal with all the success? It must be heady stuff going from the life you were talking about in Monk's Corner to not New York, but the world now. How do you cope with that? I learned my lesson a long time ago, man. The first time I ever got fired was from Hot 98.9 in Charleston, South Carolina. But I really held myself accountable because I know that I was not using the microphone the way that I should have used the microphone back then. I didn't understand the power 
that comes with that microphone. You know, Malcolm X said the person who controls the media controls the minds of the masses. I know back then I was not putting the right things in people's minds and people's heads. And so now when it comes to the success, it's not about me. It's about who can I empower today? Who can I help today? I like opening and sharing my platform with people more so than anything. I wrote two books, one called Black Privilege, another one called Shook One. You know, Black Privilege was just, you know, eight lessons that I learned in my life. So once again, even though I'm talking about myself, I'm sharing my life experiences to help somebody else. Shook One was about a journal I was keeping while I was going to therapy. That, too, helped other people. You know, I was just telling my story. So I think that's what helps me not to get big-headed, uh, uh, not to have an ego. Uh, success to me isn't about what I'm accomplishing. Success to me is like, what am I doing to help other people? That's when you truly start to feel successful. You're one of the few people who has the gravitas to talk to the big stars as a peer. When you interview them, what are you trying to get from them, and how do you do it? I'm just always coming from the perspective of curiosity. I think that's what every radio personality, every media personality should never lose. Don't lose that curiosity. When you start to think that you're an expert, and people are really coming to you because you're the authority on all things hip-hop or the authority on all things politics. That's when you get corny. When you're the know-it-all, to me, it's like you really know nothing. I don't like people like that. I like people that when I'm watching them, I can tell they're learning and I'm learning with them in that moment. Let's talk about something new, podcasting. Why do you think it suddenly broke out? I mean, it had been around for a while, and then just suddenly it took off. It's the same reason people love radio. I think one problem that radio, I hope we can fix going into the new decade, we haven't done a great job of grooming personalities. It should be more than one Charlemagne. It should be more than one Bobby Bones. It should be more than one Elvis Duran. You know, I don't think that we've done a good job of letting people express their personalities. You know, I think radio got a little bit too, too vanilla. I think podcasts allow you to be a personality because you're really taking these kids off the street the same way I was when back in 1998, I was off the street. Nobody taught me how to do radio. I just started talking. And that's what these kids are doing with their podcast. They just talking and they're telling their life experiences and they're talking about things from their POV. And I think some people just find it refreshing and they just find it entertaining. Like when we talk about being those companions on those long car rides, man, you know, if it's not the morning show, and you listening to the radio in the middays or in the afternoons or at nights, you don't really feel like you got a companion. You just feel like somebody's talking at you. When you turn on them podcasts, you feel like it's some people with you laughing, joking, having a conversation. Podcast is creating more friends for people to ride with. Let's talk about social. Social influencers are all the rage with marketers. You have something none of them have. You have a huge, engaged, and regular audience on the radio every day, plus the millions of followers on social too. So will you and The Breakfast Club put a post up socially? How does that fit with your radio show? Before I feel like we had these steaks, but we were eating them with forks. But I feel like with social media now we got the knives because we're cutting it up and that's how we're feeding the masses and like the conversation never stops. I mean, literally never stops. Oh, I know, I know. I look at your posts. Yes, which is not good for your mental health, by the way, because like nobody should be that connected all the time and literally... It can be interviews from years ago that people will start talking about now. It's like they're discovering all of this new stuff all of the time. So it's like the Breakfast Club, the conversation never stops. It's always a constant conversation about some type of content that I created. So you got to feel good about that. But it's literally a conversation that 
never stops. And if you think you're these people's friend when you're on the radio for four hours a day, no, you're these people's friend 24 hours a day and they have questions and they demand answers. How dare you not reply to me? You know, <laughs> that's how they view it. How dare you not reply to me if I post something on your page? And I find myself engaging with them. I actually think it's fun. You get to see the reaction. That's actually one of the things that's new to radio that we didn't have back in the day to actually see how people react to your interviews, whether they're trending on social media or people learn new information. Or even when it's not a celebrity, it's somebody from a business and you bring them on. Like we had my guy on the other day, his name is Kareem. He's in the social equity and the YouTube interview might've got like 70,000 views, something like that. But he's like, yo, we getting tens of thousands of emails, people hitting us up, inquiring about our social equity. So to watch these companies like that get those booths, or the entrepreneur who's selling t-shirts, whatever it is, just to watch these people be able to establish themselves just from an interview is very powerful. How do you help advertisers get a return on the investment in your show? What do you think the value of being on the radio is for an advertiser? I mean, I think it's everything, especially when you're dealing with a show that has the listenership that The Breakfast Club does and has the social media engagement that The Breakfast Club does because our people trust us. That's one reason I won't just put my name on anything. You know, if I'm not actually using it, then I'm not going to really talk about it. Sometimes I mess up because I'm using products and I might just shout it out. Next thing you know, they reaching out to me and sending me product. Because they've gotten these spikes in sales or like these spikes in mentions on social media. People are starting to check them out. I just think radio, especially now, man, radio with social media and then YouTube. It all works as one. I don't think we could ever put a price on it. We've built this multi-platform company now. Yeah. Because it's hard to tell where one ends, the other begins. Yeah. You've spent a lot of time on TV as well as radio. How do you contrast the audio experience of radio with the TV experience? Audio is more intimate. When you're sitting down having a conversation with somebody, you can get more comfortable. I think when they come on television, they know that the segment is only going to be six, seven minutes. When you think about the compelling interviews that you saw on TV back in the day, the compelling interviewers, it was the Larry Kings, the Oprah Winfrey, the Diane Sawyers, the Barbara Walters. Why were they interviews so compelling? Because they actually took time. They actually sat down and had long-form conversations with these people. It's the intimacy of it. You know, that's one reason I used to love Arsenio Hall back in the day. You know, Arsenio Hall used to have these what seemed like long conversations with them. They would be, you know, 15, 20 minutes, which is long on television, but that's all we had back then. There was no podcast. What's the longest interview you've done on the radio? Longest interview I've ever done on the radio was an hour and 47 minutes, and that was with Dick Gregory. God bless the dead. Rest in peace. I think that was actually his last interview, and I remember just... I had never had met Dick Gregory, always been a fan of Dick Gregory. And, you know, we just sat there. I remember Angela E and Envy being so restless. And Dick had, like, all of these papers that he was showing us. It was almost like he knew he wasn't going to be around much longer. So he wanted all of this information to be out there. And it's, it's literally like an hour, 47-minute interview. And I'm so happy that we did that. You've embraced a number of important social causes, some by creating awareness, some by providing insights, some outlets for emotions, some by raising money, some by donating your own money. All have had huge impact. How do you choose your issues and causes? I know what it feels like to not have. I grew up in a single wide trailer in Montana, South Carolina. I didn't even realize how poor we were. And it's so funny because my mom says the same thing. I didn't realize how poor we were. And she talks about that when she was growing up. I just feel like when you have a lot. Sometimes it's very easy just to say here. But I mean, I just try to do things that are of personal interest to me. Anything that has to do with mental health, the research of it, 
the treatment of it, I'm going to be all into that. My mother went to a HBCU, a historically black college university. So I'm going to always be big in the HBCU. Anything that can empower people economically, I'm going to give money to those type of foundations. So it's just things that I have personal interest in. Your book, Shook One, can you talk a little bit about your journey? My whole life I've had like these really bad panic attacks. And, you know, I never knew what those panic attacks were. You know, I just honestly thought that the environment I grew up in warranted me to have that shortness of breath and feeling like I'm having a heart attack and those sweaty palms and things like that. So I never thought anything of it until 2010 when I was back living at home with my mom, driving down I-26 and feeling like I was about to die. Like, yo, this is it. And so I went to the hospital. The doctor was like, yo, your heart is fine. You got an athlete's heart. And he was like, yo, do you have anxiety? And I was like, anxiety. And he was like, it sounds like you had a panic attack. I was like, a panic attack? Are you stressed out about anything? I'm like, hell yeah. I'm stressed about all kinds of stuff. I'm living at home with my mom. I just got fired for the fourth time. And so in my mind, when he said that to me, okay, all I got to do is get another job. I get another job, all that, I go out the window, everything will be cool. Four or five years later, end up getting the breakfast club. Had a lot of success, but still having those panic attacks. Still falling into depression for whatever reason. And um, I study successful people, and a lot of people that I know that are successful were talking to me about therapy. And they was like, yo, maybe you should try therapy. And so I just stopped flirting with the idea around 2017, and I just started going. It's done wonders for my life. It's literally like organizing a junkie closet. Like, you know how you go in a closet and you might have clothes and sneakers and everything everywhere, so you just start, like, folding up the stuff that you want to keep and putting it in a nice place and the things that you don't want, you pack up, you ship off, and now you got room to bring in new things. That's just what therapy has done for me. It's just, like, really helped me to get a handle on my anxiety. If you could, what advice would you have for your 16-year-old self? I would tell my 16-year-old self, don't change a thing, really. I believe in the space-time continuum. I watched a lot of Back to the Future. And I know Avengers Endgame changed our thoughts on time travel, but I still feel like if you go back in time and you change anything you went through, you may not end up where you are. So the only thing I would tell him is that it's going to be a lot harder than you realize it's going to be, but I promise you everything will be all right. Just don't get discouraged and stay the course. I don't think I would tell my 16-year-old self I'm going to be successful, though, because I feel like, my 16-year-old self would just sit around and wait to be successful. So what advice do you have for those people who want to be the next you? That's where you fail. You fail by trying to be the next anything. You should truly just be yourself. Now, it's great to be inspired. Like, I was inspired by a lot of radio personalities, but I would have failed tremendously trying to be any of them. The beauty of life is that we are all blessed to be our own individual unique personality. That's why our DNA is different than everybody else. If you really tap into who you are and your experiences and what you've been through, you can deliver a story that people can relate to, but nobody else has been through. So I would never tell you to want to be like me because you can't be like me because you haven't gone through what I've gone through. You're not from where I'm from. You're not me. Be yourself. Genuinely be yourself, your true authentic self. And I think that you will be a-okay, and you'll be a personality that people want to listen to. You, like a lot of guests on this show, are not a college graduate. By the way, I'm not either. Any regrets that you didn't go to college? No. It's difficult having that conversation with kids telling them you didn't go to college because, once again, you're not me. LeBron James didn't go to college, but you're not LeBron James. Like, you got you to gotta find—I was lucky enough and blessed enough to find my gifts in life early. 
And, you know, being that we live in a society, we live in an America where you can capitalize off your gifts, I was able to do that. Everybody's not going to be that lucky. So, or that blessed. I don't like the word luck. Be that blessed. So I would tell you, go to school until you figure it out. It can't hurt, right? Until you figure out what it is that you want to do, it doesn't hurt to go to college. I'm the exception, not the rule. So on the continuum of work-life balance on one end and work-life integration on the other, where do you fall? Honestly, if I'm being honest, I think I focus more on my personal nowadays than anything else because I feel like if I'm not the best me mentally, if I'm not the best me emotionally, spiritually, physically, I can't be the best professionally. So as we wrap up, we always do a shout-out to two different kinds of people from Math & Magic, entrepreneurs and marketers, those that came at it from an analytical perspective, the math folks, and those that came at marketing from the magic side, the showman. Who's the best of the math people you can think of or that you admire? I'm thinking about like different executives that I met on my radio journey. George Cook, Cadillac Jack, Dennis Clark, G-Spin, because it is a science to this thing that we do call radio. And I've seen them take these one plus ones and make them two. That's not easy as people think it is. So, magician, who's the most creative? I like guys like Jay-Z. reason I like guys like Jay-Z is because he's from a place where people like him are not supposed to come from. He didn't have any of the training that a lot of entrepreneurs and CEOs have. He just had a CEO's mind. And like he said, that marketing plan was him, and he was an entrepreneur. He's the type of person that would be successful in whatever field he chose to be in. He just has something that you can't you can't buy. And Jay-Z's just been a person who's dictated culture for the past 30 years, and not just for himself. Like, look at all of the people that he's put on, whether it's the Rihannas, the J. Coles, the Kanye's, like all of these people who have influenced culture in so many different ways stem from him and what he built. And so when I look at what I want to do as far as Radio and media, I want people to look at me in that same way. Because like I said, it's not about me. It's about what are you doing to make this culture that you love move forward. And I genuinely love forward, and I want to keep moving this culture of radio forward. Charlemagne, you have a tremendous influence on culture and the lives of others. Thank you for doing it with so much thought and so much intention. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you. Appreciate you. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Charlemagne the God. One. Read and listen to things that don't pertain to you. This invaluable advice from Charlemagne's mom enabled him to see a world outside the one he grew up in and helped him connect with a wide audience later in his career. Two, never stop creating. Even after Charlemagne got fired from several radio jobs and was living in his mom's house, it was a few videos he made with friends that ultimately got him his big break. Three, come from the perspective of curiosity, not expertise. When Charlemagne interviews someone, the best conversations happen when they learn from each other in the moment. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time.
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.